0: WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington.
1: More information at visitbloomington.com.
2: Hi, this is Elmore Leonard. I'm, I'm listening to Film Sociology, and, and uh, it's, it's a real program. It's great. It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the Multiplex in the Art House what's new on video and streaming, and you might also hear about some dead people we like. We don't
1: have time for dead people we don't like.
2: Anyway, this is Film Sociology, where you'll find out what's the next cinematic marvel,
0: It was unbelievable!
2: and what's just a movie.
1: SHUT UP! MY GOD! YOU HAVE NO FREAKING LIFE!
2: Okay, here's your host and my dad, Matthew Sosie.
0: Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Socey. This show is available on iTunes, and like all of the podcasts here at WFYI, available on Spotify. Well, we got a full show today, friends. Uh, it's just you and me, and uh, but we will be dipping into the archives because of uh, an anniversary that happened in broadcasting last week. We will grab a pencil. We will do that. We will pay tribute to dead people we like because we never have time for dead people we don't like. And uh, we'll go around the horn and tell you what's, uh, what's at the drive-ins and uh, that sort of thing. But I, I want to... Uh, Share a little uh, incident that happened uh, with me on Monday. So, last weekend, I went up to Chicago for a Father's Day weekend with my family and another family, good, good dear friends of mine from college. And uh, my buddy Laura, one of the most patient people on the planet, uh, I'm, we have a, a, a little thing of uh, we have a tradition of watching bad cinema together, and she had never heard. But I uh, had never heard of the film, and then I inflicted on her the the romantic drama from that's now out on video by Kino Lorber. I shouldn't say now out, it's been out for a bit. Moment by Moment. This starred John Travolta and Lily Tomlin. She Tomlin is a recently divorced woman living in Malibu who comes across who comes into the paths of a handsome young drifter named Strip. Not kidding. This was released in 1978, if I remember right. This is at the height. You know, Travolta had already made Saturday Night Fever. Tomlin's already won the top co- comics of the 1970s, and they made a drama. Besides not, besides having similar hairstyles, zero chemistry, zero. And the thing is, this was written and directed. By Jane Wagner, by Lily Tomlin's partner, the woman that gave helped us, who who gave us search for intelligent Science in the universe, made this really dull, bad drama, and uh, it it was just kind of pushed by the wayside, and it was one it hadn't been a, put it was not put out on video for a long, long time, and uh, I, I had just found out fairly recently that Keno Lorber. Uh, put it out on home video, and uh, man, it was, it's fun bad. It's, it's the fact that you have two actors of that magnitude and they, can, and it's called acting, you know, and the fact that they cannot bring it together, and i I doing a little bit of research, Tomlin admitted that That the she and Travolta were ill prepared, were not prepared enough uh, to jump into this role, and it looked like everybody lived in Malibu, so it was fairly inexpensive to shoot. You just kind of shot out of your backyard in some cases, Um, but and and also the thing that cracked us up the most was he the way he talks to her Strip, the way Strip talks to the the divorce lady especially now in the last few years because of covid and social distancing how close he gets i mean in her face in her realm in her grill all this in her bubble um it 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 just added to the uncomfortableness of this film but so yeah fun bad picture called moment by moment it is one one of the more no- notorious flops of uh, of the 1970s y uh, l Lily would go on to do other things, of course, and Travolta would bounce back with the, the other big films that uh, were a part of his decade. But, man, what a hiccup. It, that was fun. But that's that's not the incident I was telling you about, although that was fun. So Monday, Monday was there was going to be a, an advanced screening of the film Elvis. So I had kind of wrapped my weekend of, okay, if I leave Chicago... At a certain time on Monday morning, I can make it to the screener, to the screening, and then I have rehearsal. I am directing a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, July 21st through the 24th at Arts for Lawrence, IndieBardFest.org. Check, I'll check all that stuff out. So I left at a certain time. I, I had a fairly leisurely morning with my buddy Laura. I uh, By the way, I cannot stay in the one-bedroom apartment with my wife and daughter because One has the bed, the other has the couch, and it's a small apartment, so I stayed with friends. The family is fine. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have a leisure time to drive and then be able to make it to the screening. So I did. I I drove, had a nice leisure drive, listened to music and podcasts, and uh, made it back in time to swing by the radio station for just a moment to grab some stuff from my desk and uh, found a decent parking spot. I will not say the name of the venue Um, I don't want to, there'll be other things happening there, I'm sure. But I got there about 2.30 for a 3 o'clock screening. And then I was informed by management that they had pushed the screening to 4 o'clock. Now, and I also find out that the film Elvis is 2 hours and 40 minutes. Apparently, Baz Luhrmann wants to cover his entire life. And, uh, my rehearsal started at 7 in Lawrence. No way, this was going to work. So I left, and was and Evan Dossie will back me up. I I was not a pleasant person. Um, I I did the kind of d bag move of when being told sorry, I responded with not as sorry as I am, and uh, and I left, and so did Evan. So uh, I believe a a a curtly written letter was e or email was sent. Uh, so thank you, Evan, for doing that. But man, that was just just kind of through a, a a thing in the punch bowl if you know what I mean there. Um, So it was just kind of a bummer. But I wanted to see it. I know I've not reviewed uh, some large films here because I either missed the screening, I was taking care of my mother-in-law, or I just didn't care. But that being said, there is a film opening this week that I did get to watch. So, and I want to thank... I want to thank—I believe it was Sony—for sending it to me. It is a—it's a, a fairly—it's a dark artistic comedy called "Official Competition," and this stars Penelope Cruz as an avant-garde filmmaker who is assigned to make a blockbuster movie. And she hired, she cast two specifically different styles of actors. One played by Oscar Martinez as a more scholastic, more. Um, Academic, he teaches acting classes. More, there are three different egos going on in this film. Um, a little more self centered as far as for the good of the craft, and then a giant movie star played by Antonio Banderas, who does social media and uh, works the room and is a schmoozer and doesn't need to emote. He's been he's made over a hundred films, he knows what needs to be done. Um, this is all, and this is all uh, sandwiched by uh, a, a very successful businessman on his 80th birthday, who wants to leave a legacy. He wants to leave some prestige, so he thinks I'll produce a movie, and that's what he does. He he purchases a Nobel-winning uh, novel which Cruz, the eccentric director, does not like, so she will have some liberties with it. But it, it work. seeing a film about the creative process while I'm directing a show is always fun. I, I got uh, flashbacks of the second play I ever directed, in my own uh, adaptation of the Greek tragedy, Medea. And uh, before rehearsal, I watched the great documentary Lost in La Mancha, which was about Terry Gilliam's attempt to make the film The Death of Don Quixote. And I thought, well, if he's having that much trouble and he's got 20-30 million dollars in his budget, my little $140 play is going to be fine. So <clears throat> anyway, it was it, well, I'm not going to pull any moves that happen in this film with my cast, but it, but there is her approach and then the two actors approach and as well as their relationships with each other. It's you know if you 're just an audience member it 's not just actors hopping up on stage or in a studio and just doing it. There is a process we see the three of them getting to know one another when she 's putting them through some fairly ridiculous exercises. But I understand why she 's trying to do these exercises um, there 's a couple moments that kind of telegraph itself, maybe a little too much for my taste um, there's a There is a moment where she has the two gentlemen sitting under what has been uh, held up by a crane, a very large boulder. And uh, so you're waiting to see what happens with said boulder. Um, it's it's very amusing. So if you have any creativity in your aspect or you've worked with creative folks, uh, I think you'll appreciate this. And uh, there there is a moment that did make me vocalize out loud. It's near the end, and I want to give it away. But uh, but good performances from Martinez, Cruz, and Banderas, and uh, yeah, so it just it, it it pokes fun at the creative process and the egos that come with those creative folks. So look for official competition that is opening this weekend. So you know if they if the theater changes the screening of El time for Elvis, you can go check that out. Um, also on video from uh, Kino Lorber is a documentary called Bleeding Audio. And this is the story, the rise and fall of uh, the band The Matches, this kind of pop punk uh, band I had no clue about. Um, my my popular music uh, awareness kind of died in the 90s. Um, I got a blue show for proof of that. <laughs> but, and this was a band, a garage band based out of Oakland that apparently, as, as the film tells us at the beginning, we're going to be the next Green Day. Um, and it tells their story about a little garage band who winds up getting a tour of Bosnia because of connections with one of the band leaders' fathers. Father, uh, I also forgot this is the area where this is the part of uh, California and, and uh, Oakland where Green Day and Rancid came from. You know, the type of band that would drive 4,000 miles to Chicago for a 30-minute show, but they did get seen by a thousand people. So it's the, and they wind up opening for real big fish i am also at that stage where I know songs and I know band names sometimes I can't always connect the two <clears throat> um and so th- we see the the popularity of the band they put on a fun live show they are very popular on a local cable music cable access show they get accorded by major record labels they get on the warp tour, which I always remember hearing of the tour but never seeing it um so they, they talk about what could be the rise, and then they were also a part of one of those bands that kind of took a big hit when it came to file sharing, which I never did. And uh, as they put it, from 2004 to 2006, folks basically stopped buying music. We also get an aspect of what happens when it comes to finances between a band and a label and a band and management. And so even even though I didn't know the music of the band, I appreciated the storytelling of this and as well as the gentlemen uh, involved and the look into the business that they had to learn in some ca- in some cases they had to learn the hard way um finding out years after you break up that only four songs were registered with b m i out of your forty some odd tunes so uh but it's a good cautionary tale if you are in a band or if you know, you are a musician of any kind. Um, Again, you don't have to know the music of the matches, but it still tells a good story. So look for Bleeding Audio, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Matches. That is out on Blu-ray on Kino Lorber as well. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. Let's go around the horn a little bit. Um, Just a reminder that the uh, 19th annual Indie Film Fest is wrapping up on the 26th. Uh, This is the... uh, the online portion of it, so you can go to IndieFilmFest.org for online screenings running through the 26th. Uh, Over at the Tibbs Drive-In, let's see, this, on screen one, Elvis and Top Gun Maverick. That's going to be a long night. Screen two, Lightyear and Bob's Burgers. Screen three, Jurassic World and Ambulance. And on screen four, oh my, Black Phone... And Jaws too, So kudos to the Tibbs for finding an older title there. That was that was pretty good. Uh, over at the Can-Can, you have Elvis, Phantom of the Open. That's also opening this weekend with Mark Rylance and Sally Hawkins. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is running through June 30th, as well as Paris is Burning. And But I'm a Cheerleader. So that is happening over at the Can-Can. At the Skyline Drive-In, uh, this weekend, Lightyear and Bob's Burgers. June 29th, uh, Indie Sensations, C- Crimes of the Future and Pleasure. And then uh, Free Popcorn Thursday with Lightyear over at the Skyline Drive-In. Over at the Historic Artcraft Theater in Franklin, this weekend, 2 and 7:30 p.m., Friday and Saturday. What's up, Doc? Uh, Tuesday, tw- June 28th at 10 a.m., Happy Feet. July 1st and 2nd, 2 and 7.30 p.m., National Treasure. And then Tuesday, July 5th at 10 a.m., Spy Kids. And ooh, July 8th and 9th, 2 and 7.30 p.m., Duck Soup on a 35 millimeter print. Oh, definitely worth checking out at the Historic Art Theater in Franklin. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. All right, friends, grab a pencil. Let's find out what you've been watching this week. We start with Erica, who sends me a note. I never remember all the movies, but here's my list ish. Thank you, Chief. Keep at it. A notebook by your bedside. It's okay. Two unriffed El Santo movies. That means you watch those without riffing, friends. That's serious stuff there. Uh, The Public Enemy from 1931. The next two in Mystery Science Theater's first season on Comedy Central. They're all available on Gizmoplex, commercial-free at no cost through 2022. Thank you for that info. Uh, The Wrong Box and Tonight or Never, as well as Stage Fright from 1950. Thank you, Chief. Uh, David writes, sadly, no films. Stranger Things Season 4 and The Boys Season 3. Lily writes, I introduced Andy to A Fish Called Wanda this week. Good call. Uh, Lou Harry writes, RRR, R, R, so far the film of the year. Daniel writes, Murder is Easy, My Fellow Americans, Crisis in Six Scenes, Summertime, Small Time Crooks, Fallen Angel, Mighty Aphrodite, Hi, Mira, The Key to the City, Jerry and Marge Go Large, Three Days in the con- of the Condor, Cat People, which version of Cat People, Night Train to Munich, and Cry Danger. Uh, Pat writes Lightyear. Molly writes The Witcher and Cha-Cha Real Smooth. Matt Matt Walls. There you go. Matt is one of my actors in A Midsummer Night's Dream, July 21st through the 24th at Arts for Lawrence. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He's a dapper Dan man. Michelle writes Reign of Fire and The Descendants. Um, Jamie writes, The Northman, good luck to you, Leo Grand, and Made in Manhattan. I can't remember the year, but it's a Jennifer Lopez movie. Thank you, Jamie. I actually remember reviewing that film and liking that film on Fox 59 AM back in the day. Uh, Melissa writes, The Black Phone and Top Gun Maverick, again. Uh, Ben writes, Indie Film Fest. Yes, thank you, Ben. Uh, Don writes, Anchorage and It Happened One Weekend. Devin writes, Pray Away and Toy Stories 1 through 3. Kurt writes, um, Field of Dreams at Bell Trace and parts 2 and 3 for our Ray Leota Festival. Thank you, Kurt. I'm glad you're making that uh, festival happen over at Bell Trace. Jed writes, Just watched Unholy Partners with Edward G. Robinson and Marsha Hunt for the first time. Highly recommend a fun film. Also spent Father's Day watching The Three Soos- Stooges with my sons. Happy Father's Day. Uh, Cassie writes, Atonement, House of Gucci, and Moon of the Wolf. Gretchen writes, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Craig writes, Belfast, and a bizarre German documentary called Gladbeck. Tony writes, Lightyear. Uh, Nick, Nick Rogers, writes, Beware, Children at Play, The Hand that Rocks the Cradle, Morbius, Leftover Feelings, a Studio B revival, Anchorage, Studio 66, Beavis and Butthead, Do the Universe, and A-Line. David writes Carnival of Souls from 1941. Taylor writes uh, The Importance of Being Earnest, Mr. Wright, The Guilty from Noir Alley, and The Wild Bunch. Uh, Sam Watermeyer writes the uh, 2006 version of The Hills Have Eyes, Before and After, Red Dragon, Two Heartland Horror Shorts, Skin and Bone, and Lucien in a World Without Solitude. Joe writes, Joe is also in A Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> the Stepfather and the freak Maker* via The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. Thank you, Joe. Amanda writes, uh, good luck to you, Leo Grand. Uh, dad, uh, she, and she always does the photos, and uh, American Gigolo. Uh, you, oh, by the way, so you must remember this wraps up their erotic 80s with um, Rob Lowe and Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And man, to revisit that era... I remember seeing Sex Lies and videotape in the theater, and yeah, Rob Lowe was an easy punchline when it came to uh, not just the Oscars, but the videotape. But uh, enough time has passed that he can still laugh about it and be roasted on Comedy Central. So there's that for you. Abby writes Documentaries this week. I watched Val and Roadrunner, both highly recommended, with Scott chiming in that Roadrunner broke his heart. And Abby's, too. I understand. Amanda also watched Shampoo, uh, Mom and Dad, The Immortal Life of uh, Henrietta Hex, The Humans as well. She likes photographing the covers. Thank you. Uh, Missy writes Captain Marvel. Uh, Kevin writes No Time to Die and The Protégé. Um, Eric says, I don't know if Pistol counts as a film or not, but I enjoyed it. Yes, it's a documentary. It's fine. You can Documentaries are films. You can mention them. Hell, I have people mentioning TV shows uh, on the film page, so what are you going to do? Uh, Linda writes, good luck to you, Leo Grand. Channing writes, Day of the Dead. Romero, not whatever the remake was. Thank you, Channing. Um, Rachel writes, Captain America, The First Avenger, and Tarzan the Fearless. Roxana writes, Stranger Things. D- see? Doug writes, uh, Steamboat Bill Jr.? Big screen, live organ, and sound effects. Oh, that's cool. Uh, Titanic, The Three Faces of Eve, Magic, and The Hours. <clears throat> uh, Rachel writes, "So I married an axe murderer, superstar, Three Amigos. You know the classics." And she wrote classics in all caps. Plus, good luck to you, Leo. Grand. I, I don't, I don't think those three films are classics. They're old, but they're not necessarily classics. For some, they're classics. Just not me. Uh, Melissa. <laughs> Melissa also chimes in. Oh, I watched Morbius too. Forgot about that. It was good. Ha ha. <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. Don't you don't have to edit your post? Just put another one in. I I know you're on phones or whatever, but uh, there's that. Uh, Martin writes: had a fun discussion slash debate slash grudge match of Martin Scorsese versus Quentin Tarantino with some fellow film fest volunteers. Phil, are are you in college, Martin? That's Okay, that well, I, I'm glad you had that. Better you than me, <laughs> so, sure. Um, do you like steak? Do you like ice cream? Scott writes, Top Gun. I normally don't give too many second movies a thumbs up, but was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Now you have to give Siskel and Ebert's family money. Movine um, writes, uh, Kirk Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time. Britt writes, uh, Wrath of Man. Uh, Terry writes, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Um... Every bit as good as its buzz, Doctor Strange, and uh, there you go. And Lisa, Lisa writes, uh, June again, good luck Leo Grand. Tom writes, uh, The Day Mars Invaded the Earth, The Day the Earth Stood Still, War of the Worlds, and the 1968 version of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes, that's the one with Diana Rigg and Helen Mirren. As the lovers. Oh, boy. Beverly. Beverly is also in Midsummer Night's Dream. Moros Peros, even better than I remember, and Requiem for a Dream. Beverly, I hope that wasn't a double feature. My God. Uh Austin Thomas Glidden, uh, Medium Cool Podcast, uh, had an 80s marathon of The Untouchables, Casualties of War, Big, Above the Law, Caddyshack, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then the 2022 films, Top Gun, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Mad God. So thank you, Austin. Medium cool podcast, friends. Speaking of podcasts, uh, Golden Globus Theater this week. They tackled that manly movie, the original 1986 Top Gun. You've been warned. Um, okay, back to the list. Uh, Christian writes Doctor Strange, Krista writes Lightyear. Marty, Marty, oh, man, nice. It's nice to hear from you, Marty. The Grand Budapest Hotel on HBO Max. Fantastic cinematography with a live theater feel to it. Storyline was good, too. Two thumbs up. Now you have to give Cisco and Ebert's family money. Um, Robert Muggy writes, uh, The 47 Ronin, The Lost Weekend, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, and Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen. Bill writes, Annie Hall, la-di-da. Uh, Leslie writes Fantastic Beasts, Uh, Crimes of Grindelwald, you know, wizards and stuff. Uh, Mike writes I Am Not Your Negro as well as Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. Mary writes Scanners. Linda writes uh, (laughs) I Rented the Batman, Forgot to Watch It. That might be a film sociology question. What's a film that you rented and forgot to watch? Might have to do that for next week. This reminds me of um, uh, the score in Chicago. There used to be a show, Poors and Bernstein, and one and, and they had a segment on Fridays called Friday Fung. Fung is winning, winning is Fung. And one of my favorite stories was uh, was a subject called Tales of Laziness. And it comes from the fact that if you're at the microwave, you press 33 seconds because you don't want to move your finger down to the zero. We're talking that lazy, that petty. And one of my favorites was a a gentleman who had rented a movie after a long day's work, came home, kind of tossed the DVD onto the dining room table, flopped down on the couch, and was so lazy that he didn't want to get up and get the DVD, so he grabbed the remote and ordered the film he just rented. That's lazy. So I might might have to do that as a bonus question soon. So thank you, Linda, for the uh, inspiration there. Uh, Gary writes, The Decline of Western Civilization. Gary, which one? Which volume? There's three of them. Maybe four. Uh, Turning Red, The Big Ask, Jungle Cruise, Jungle Book, Jungle Book, 1942 and 1967, The Jungle Bunch. Wow. Killing Birds, Murder Mansion, Cat in the Brain, Return to Horror Hotel, Bex, The Miseducation of Cameron Post, and Song One. Uh, Abby writes Spider-Man Far From Home, Spider-Man No Way Home, several documentaries whose names are escaping right now because it's 5.30 a.m. Thank you for posting at 5.30 a.m. And uh, and finally, Susan writes "Ready Player One." And there you go, friends. That's what you've been watching this week. So, uh, hope you found some. Fi- hope you got to get some ideas of films to watch that are new, or at least new to you, as well as falling back on old favorites. All right, uh, we're gonna dip into the archives, and then we'll wrap up the show. Uh, last week, so I want to play for you a piece of audio, a very pe- uh, important piece of uh, audio. This this is from uh, an anniversary that I want to observe from June 16th, 1979.
1: The following prescribe is transcribed. Good evening. I'm Jerry G. Bishop, and this is the famed split-level dungeon studio where many years ago, the legendary Sven-gula, Svengoolie, burst into television prominence. Even today, many fondly remember Svengoolie providing the same classic entertainment as such time-honored shows as Hello Larry, My Mother the Car, or Celebrity Pinspotting. But then, one day, at his peak, Svengoolie simply dropped from sight. The rumors were many that he'd dyed his hair and changed his name to Phil Donahue, that he'd gone on to a rewarding career in motel management. No one knew for sure. And yet, one rumor still is whispered among an uneasy populace. What if there were the same situation as in the past with the son of Frankenstein, the son of Dracula, Sanford and Son? Could there exist somewhere Somehow, the son son of Svengoolie. Hey, Dad, can I borrow the keys to the hearse tonight?
2: (laughs) Ah, thank you. Ah, good evening. I am the son of Svengoolie. Well, I didn't think you were Rula Lenska. Well, it's an honest mistake. We've got a movie for you tonight that makes Dawn of the Dead look like Godzilla meets the Brady Bunch. Right, guys? No.
1: sorry.
2: (laughs) Well, it's an honest mistake, too. It's called In the Year 2889 and stars Paul Peterson, who used to play the son on the old Don Reed show, huh? Also, it stars such people as Quinn O'Hara, Charla Doherty, and uh, uh, who else is in this movie?
1: Rodney Ellen Rippey.
2: And, of course, Rodney Ellen Rippey as the asbestos in Tom Snyder's hairdryer. Okay, roll the movie. I'll be back in just a little while. Let's get to the movie now, all right, guys? Thank you. All right, roll the movie. Let's get on with it.
0: That's right, Svengoolie, well, son of Svengoolie, and then uh, just morphed into Svengoolie, so yeah. So happy anniversary to Svengoolie and Rich Coase, so yes, we're dipping through the archives. Here's my interview with Rich Coase. Enjoy! You grew up in Chicago, right?
2: Yeah, I have pretty much spent my whole life here in Chicago, my whole life and even my whole career Uh, I I was born in Chicago, and about four years after that, we moved to some suburbs of Chicago. Such as? Uh, Around the Morton Grove Niles area.
0: As a kid, what what horror show host did you watch?
2: I barely got in on one of the originals. I was very young, but I remember seeing at some relatives' houses when we were there late, uh, Marvin Terry Bennett, who hosted Chicago's Shock Theater, Back then, of course, that was the name. Shock was the name of the Universal movie package that was released all over the country, mm-hmm. and that was where Vampira was first running her stuff out in L.A. and in Chicago. It happened to go to uh, WBKB TV, where uh, Terry Bennett worked, and he became Marvin, the sort of uh, beatnik-type ghoul host.
0: Would that laid the foundation for uh, Jerry G. Bishop.
2: Um, not so much, because I think Jerry was already out of town by then and, and uh, you know, working his way through radio in various cities, radio and TV.
0: How old were you when you
2: started watching Jerry? Uh, I was actually just about to enter college.
0: And uh, what were your impressions of watching uh, Jerry work on television?
2: Well, first of all, I'd been a fan of his anyway from his radio work. He'd been on the air doing morning radio and such uh for many years already before he even hit that, and uh, I was a fan of his, so I, you know, was tuning in just because I heard that he was doing some funny shtick in between things as just a voiceover announcer for the horror movies on Friday night, and as it was developing along, you know, I, I enjoyed the character that he was portraying as well, and how he was kind of, you know, positioning himself between the various segments of the movie.
0: Did he ever tell you how he developed the
2: character? Uh, he, he kind of was taking a tip from the famous Ernie Anderson, Uh Goularty, who was on opposite him on TV when he was working in Cleveland. But, uh, Goularty was another sort of beatnik type character. And, uh, Jerry decided to kind of update that and make it a sort of hippie ghoul. And so he kind of got, got the nod from that. And then, uh. He always said that his his Spangooli accent was kind of Bela Lugosi crossed with Yiddish.
0: That's a good way of putting it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, what was even funnier was he always described my accent as a combination of Bela Lugosi and Lawrence Welk. (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> so so berwin really loves you <laughs> i guess so yeah They're much closer ties than i thought
0: well it's interesting because looking back um because i asked the question i had earlier about the foundation for jerry is uh because of the hippie persona and then you mentioned the beatnik persona um I, it, it was interesting as a as a youngster um with my local horror show host, I, I grew up in Michigan, and ours was uh, Sir Graves Gastly out of mm-hmm. Detroit. Is on the surface, it was scary looking, but then I realized, watching looking back, he 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 did a, a segment in drag. He did a segment German. He would uh, paint his face, you know, paint a face on his chin and uh-huh. be filmed upside down. And he showed kids pictures. And in uh-huh. your case, looking at the early pictures, by the way, there's somebody here at work who grew up in Elkhart, and she wanted me to tell you you scared her when she was a little kid.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've heard that from a few people you're here right and there.
0: <laughs> but but the fact is, you you know you ha- maybe the the exterior was scary, but you know you're cracking jokes the entire time. And I thought with especially with Jerry's, it's a hippie. He's not a vampire or a ghoul or a zombie. It's you know it's a hippie that uh, that delivers one-liners.
2: Right, exactly. I think part of it is just that uh, the the characters. Uh, I always said you know Pete, there were always been people said you should try to act more scary. <laughs> and I've often said, well, the only people who will be scared by that are, you know, kids under the age of five. It's not very effective. If you're trying to act scary and, you know, people are wanted, they're going to go, oh, come on. Whereas uh, making the character kind of comic relief to the horror is what seems to be what works. And for the most part, that's what most of the very successful hosts have done, whether it be tongue-in-cheek or you know just blatant, you know, goofballs like myself.
0: What did you think the first time you saw Count Floyd on SCTV?
2: I I thought he was hilarious. It was funny because I had actually seen Joe Flaherty, who played Count Floyd, live at Second City while he was in his tenure here in Chicago. It was right after I got out of high school, in fact. And uh, I thought he was a very funny guy to begin with. But then when I saw that, I thought it was really hilarious. And one of the things that somebody brought up is, you know, uh, he obviously was still doing Second City here in town. He hadn't gone back up to uh, Canada during the time that Jerry was doing his Svengoolie stuff here. So it it seems like, you know, a little bit of that might have been, you know, (laughs) added into his whole uh, Count Floyd persona. The the idea of, you know, running movies that maybe weren't quite, you know, what you would want to run during the time. Because Jerry had a few that were like, wait a minute, this isn't really a horror movie. And, yeah, I thought Count Floyd was very, very funny.
0: Now I know you started sending jokes to Jerry. Um, what do you remember the first one he ever used?
2: I I think it was something like, <laughs> you'll love this one.
0: Okay. What do you call a grave in Russia?
2: A what? A communist plot.
0: Oh. <laughs> You know what, I think that's being used on Fox News today, so it's all right.
2: (laughs) Well, yes, it's right up their alley there. Yeah, so at first I was just sending him random jokes that I thought he could use because he was, you know, actually soliciting them from viewers. And then uh, I, I, you know, let him know a little bit about what I was doing, that I was a broadcasting student. And I actually wrote something that was more specific for him. And he started to kind of request specific things, like can you do a parody of such-and-such commercial or or something like that. So it it got into more long-form things than just separate jokes.
0: And how long before he invited you into the studio to work?
2: I would say it was, at the most, about a year, probably a little less than that. And uh, he had me come in, and I ended up going in there, and he'd say, hey, can you do this voice for me off-camera? And... uh, you know, I did some artwork that he needed for the show. Uh, one of the guys working there then would jokingly refer to me as Jerry's art director.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and uh, he had me going with him and doing his public appearances with him as various characters and such. And, uh, you know, and it became pretty much he was trying to work it out so that I would have a full-time job at Channel 32 but before that happened, his uh, Spangoolie show was canceled. So,
0: Well, before the birth of son, what did your parents hope you would be doing at this time?
2: You know, I don't know that they had any specific uh, direction that they were hoping I would go in. My dad worked in sheet metal and ventilation, and I think he pretty much knew that I wasn't planning to go in that direction. They knew that I, I liked radio, and I think they, they kind of thought that I would go in, in that direction in broadcasting, but I don't know that they expected me to go into television as well.
0: Well, how did, uh, how did Son of Spanguli come about?
2: Uh, basically, what happened was there was a time in between <laughs> when I became son of Svengooley and when Jerry stopped being sphengooley that uh, one of the guys that was a friend of Jerry's at one of the local stations had called him and said, You know, you should just do Svengooley just as a summer fill in thing for us here And they talked about it a little bit and Jerry was like Well I don't know that I want to dress up in this stuff again And he <laughs> said, You know what? He said he said to me, Why don't you could be like son of Svengooley and then you and I can write and, you know, produce the thing together. And I was like, sure, that'd be cool. And then we talked about it, kicked around, had some false starts on it, and nothing ever really happened with it. And then a couple years down the road, when Jerry was going to head out to San Diego to do radio and TV there, he said, well, you know, what are you planning on doing now? Because somebody else I had been working with, uh, Dick Orkin, do you know him? Uh, I've heard the name. uh, Famous radio guy who did radio commercials and did a lot of uh, famous... Uh, modern radio serials like chicken man oh right and tooth fairy yeah i had been working with him and he went off to la and now jerry was leaving and he said well you know what are you going to do and i said well maybe i'll try to pitch some local station on a on a tv show and see if i can make any inroads there and he said i tell you what if you want to try to do the son thing you have my blessing and so he kind of handed that off to me and which was very flattering that he would you know take the character that he had created and kind of you know it turned it over to me more or less
0: now for those who 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 don't go on youtube what what was the besides the look what was the biggest difference between uh jerry's uh character and yours
2: uh geez let's see well jerry used to play the guitar and sing and uh i cannot play the guitar well enough to do
0: that <laughs> we thank you for that
2: yes yeah, anytime <laughs> believe me you wouldn't want to sit through that um but basically, it's the same type of character, you know, kind of mm-hmm. wisecracking. And uh, I think Jerry's character, I don't know how to put this better, was a little more aggressive than mine. And, and I think that, you know, Sven is more, uh, the one that I'm doing is more the Jack Benny character who is set upon by the other characters and such around him, whereas Jerry was more, you know, the wise guy who was, you know, dealing with the others or something.
1: And, yeah,
0: so you're the chicken butt of the jokes.
2: Yes, exactly. Well put.
0: Thank you. Uh, w- and when did the chi- was the chickens uh, your creation the 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 fly- the flying chickens?
2: Oh no, that that went back to Jerry. Okay, you uh, know the, uh, the famous old vaudeville prop of a rubber chicken. Right. Uh, he decided that whenever he would uh, do some bad joke, which was pretty often, <laughs> uh, he would be pelted with those rather than tomatoes or something like that or bricks, which would not have been pleasant.
0: Or, or the giant
1: hook.
2: The giant hook, yes, that would have been much more difficult to have one of the stagehands maneuvering all the time. You've got to also spread the fun to people because if there's one thing people always request is, "Can I come and throw chickens at you?"
0: Gee, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I think I'm at the bottom of the scroll right now. <laughs> <I see. laughs> My first uh, viewing of you, of course, was on uh, was syndicated on Channel 50 in Detroit, and this was in the early '80s. How did the syndication uh, come about?
2: Well, after uh, there had been various shows that had run back and forth. They had tried to run The Ghoul from one of uh, the stations that was owned by uh, – uh, which which company was it at the time? Kaiser, I guess, Kaiser Broadcasting. And they actually bumped Jerry spenguli off so that they could run The Ghoul, and he was not well accepted in Chicago <laughs> because – Compared to Jerry's character, this was, you know, an interloper. And he didn't make any friends because we first started out saying, I'm like, yeah, we got rid of that bum Sven Gulley. Ooh. Nice work.
1: Nice.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But uh, based on that and the fact that there was a guy in power at our Chicago station who was running all the field stations, there were field stations by then. Right. uh, He really believed in what I was doing, and he wanted to get it on the other channels. And the funny thing was that we ended up on five different channels in different cities but a lot of the stations for some reason felt that this was being forced on them so they would not promote it and uh, you know they would do nothing to help us out and now, years later, I hear from people who watched me in the various cities, and they were like, oh, yeah, everybody used to watch that. And I had no idea that there was an audience watching me back then. And they say, oh, you went to Chicago after this. And I said, no, actually, I was in <laughs> Chicago the whole time. And we would customize the opens and closes, especially so that it would look like, you know, it was something, you know, with jokes playing off that specific city. It was kind of a pain because we'd have to reshoot every open and every close for each city. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to rewrite it so that I would get in local jokes. What were the other cities? Uh, we were in San Francisco, Boston, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Chicago.
0: I remember because you made a crack on Bill Kennedy, who hosted the, uh, the local show, the right, local movie sure. show in the afternoon. And I remember calling Channel 50 and asking about you. And they told me that you were based out of Chicago, and I didn't believe them. No. (laughs) Because you mentioned Bill Kennedy. Of course you know.
2: (laughs) Well, it was funny because when we were going to do it, I asked each one of the stations, can you just send me a bunch of me like a weatherman that I can make fun of, Uh, you know, various locations in the city, sports teams, uh, and out of the stations, a couple of them sent really detailed stuff, and the rest were like, yeah, never mind.
0: Okay, I have to ask, how was Detroit's treatment of you?
2: Detroit was uh, fairly weak. <laughs> Sorry, they they sent like just a little bit of information and a Detroit Pistons uh, basketball jersey. You still have it? I think I I believe I gave it to one of my brothers after the show
0: was over. How so? How long did this uh, did this last? The the syndication.
2: It varied in the cities from like about uh, six months to a year. And a lot of that was because they just, you know, they didn't promote it, and they felt like it was not, you know, it was not something they wanted to do. It wasn't their production. At one point, we actually went to Philadelphia and shot on their set. They built a whole set just for me to shoot on. And everybody there, for the most part, was not cooperative. You know, we were doing different bits and stuff. We ran a a bit that was pretty famous that we did, uh, Mr. Robber's Neighborhood. right. Uh, where, uh, you know, I'm supposed to look at Fred Rogers as a criminal who breaks into people's homes. That's why he changes his shoes so they can't hear him. Right. And he was talking about how he, he had a good sharp knife to do something with. And one of the the engineers there goes, oh, that's nice, teaching kids to use knives.
0: Wow! This coming from Philly fans that cheer when Santa Claus get uh, taken off on a stretcher at Eagles games.
2: <laughs> else well, What can I tell you? So it was an uphill battle in most of those places, and I think that's why it didn't last in, a, in especially in a couple of those cities.
0: Well, from from a kid standpoint, it felt like it was on longer, and I, I mean that as a compliment. And I think also because of the test of time, and there's no inter- internet, and it was you had to be there for that time unless you had a, v, a VHS or Betamax. You had to be there for that time to see the show.
2: Exactly. Yeah, man, that, that was it, you know. Uh, that's why I hear these <laughs> people now who see the old clips and they go, "We never remember when this was on in, in you know, San Francisco or whatever." Yep. It it's it's quite a I think San Francisco was the city that we were in the longest, and that was like a full year. By then all the others had dropped out.
0: Some of the other characters that you had now was, was Durwood from the Jerry era or was and and you inherited him?
2: Yes, Derwood, the ventriloquist puppet, was from Jerry's era, and I, to this day, <laughs> I wish he hadn't picked such a high falsetto voice, which he could do <laughs> much better than I could, because I felt he should still have a similar type voice. You know, I didn't want to change the voice on it, but it's much harder for me to do. Uh, Tombstone was a, a character based on, really, he had a female skull named Zelda. And, uh, again, I I didn't want to do the exact same (laughs) thing with that, so uh, we created Tombstone. His name originally was Zalman T. Tombstone Jr., and it was a playoff on the old Billy Saluga character, Raymond J. Johnson. Jr., That was very popular at that time. Yeah, yeah. And Tombstone even had his own little litany, you know, like like the "You doesn't have to call me Johnson type thing, you know. But you can call me Toomey, or you can call me. And we did that at a while at the beginning. After all, I was like, I think people would be sick of this. Let's just...
0: <laughs> I always imagined Tombstone sounded like if, if Bob Dylan and the Kingfish had a child.
2: Yeah, that's pretty close. Oh, okay. <laughs> Definitely.
0: Tell us about the evolution of Kerwin.
2: Kerwin, yeah. Well, we, we've had a series of different sort of uh, puppet-like assistants doing the mail. The first was our piano player, Doug, right, and he he was actually a live person. <laughs> uh, but he often couldn't stay around long enough because he, he is, in actuality, a, a working musician who constantly has different gigs all over the place. So he couldn't wait around until we got, you know, after we did the song to do the music. Uh, we did the music bits, and then uh, we'd have to wait to do the mail after we did several other things, and he often couldn't stay around. So we just said well, let's try some things. And we had uh, a bat whose voice was like a sort of processed high tone thing. right? It was so annoying that one of the bosses in charge here actually said, I want you to get rid of it. And we had to actually do a bit where he was fired because (laughs) he couldn't stand that voice. And then for a while, we had a uh, pterodactyl who was a disc jockey who was the assistant and uh, a dinosaur, I believe. We're very into reptiles at times. I see. And finally, we had a spider for a while. And because he had eight legs, he had eight different voices. And for some reason, that just didn't work at all. But finally, uh, someone from our kids' show, Green Screen Adventures, a young lady named Jessica Hope Carlton, who uh, is very adept at building puppets, kind of as a surprise, uh, cooperating with my uh, director, came up with this. She used like one of those sort of alligator-type things you buy at the zoo. It's like a head on a stick, and you pull a little trigger to make it talk move them out, and she combined that with the body of a rubber chicken and created Kerwin as a prehistoric rubber chicken. Who sounds like Jerry Lewis. Who, yeah, well, when I first looked at him, when they gave him to me, he had these kind of goofy eyes and funny teeth, and for some reason it struck me that he sort of looked like very young Jerry Lewis. So that was why he got the voice. It was kind of like this.
0: Do you also not bring up Dean Martin around him? <laughs> no, I constantly bring up <laughs> Dean Martin just to make him angry. <laughs> So speaking of Doug, how do you select the music for the shows?
2: You know, it's, I've often been asked by one of my coworkers, what are you thinking? Because <laughs> I'll say, you know, I want to do something, you know, doing, this is like flying to the moon. And he'll say, okay, uh, and he comes up with all these songs with moon in it. And then I'll go, I know, and, and come up with some song that has no word moon in it. And he'll be like, wait, I don't get it. But there's some way that I can tie in certain lyrics that sound exactly like, you know, what what the originals are, that has something that has something to do with the movie.
0: And, and how did you meet Doug?
2: Doug and I went to high school together, actually. We ah. were in band together in high school. And uh, we became friends and and just hung around together. And uh, when I started doing TV shows, I figured, you know, it would be great to have him help out.
0: What did you play?
2: I played trombone. <laughs> it's been a long time since I played trombone, so oh, we, please don't ask me to do a solo.
0: Oh no, that's Well, we we live in the land of J.J. J. Johnson. We wouldn't ask you to do that. Well, but, certainly, yeah. But I also I also imagined you as Woody Allen in Take the Money and Run, where you played the cello, but you also had to drag the chair during the parade.
2: <laughs> Let me tell you, <laughs> being a trombone player in a parade is not fun because you're right at the front of the band. Because obviously, because of the slide action, they put you there, and also. When you're playing, you don't get to look down and see if there's anything dropped by the horses that were earlier in the parade. (laughs) That was one of the biggest hazards. And I always thought that doing marching band out on a field was one of the most unmusical experiences ever. Because you think you're doing these formations and stuff, and half the instruments turn away from the stands while they're walking in, you know, some pattern. And that means they can't hear that part of the music. So (laughs) it's like you're not hearing the whole, you know, thing like you do in a concert. What's (laughs) the deal? How did jerry and you come up with all of
0: those sound clips
2: well with jerry it was a matter of you know he used them in his radio stuff Mm -hmm. and he had a huge library of, of uh sound effects and little sound bites and things that they he passed a lot of on to me and actually it was the same thing with me because i wanted to be in radio and i also did that i mean maybe it's not as common anymore but a lot of disc jockeys used to use little you know sure. these little sound bites uh little you know cart type reactions and coke because they were on audio carts that you throw into the machine and i uh, just built up this whole library and of course once i started here a lot of the guys had suggestions for things or would find something in a show or in a commercial say oh you know you should really use this so we, we've got it all. It's all now computerized, obviously, like everything else. It's all digital, and it's in a little uh, a little machine that we can just call up a number and hit.
0: How many films or how many episodes do you record in one batch? Uh,
2: it varies. We've done as many as nine. Wow. Which is, you know, uh, we're in the studio from noon until 9 o'clock every night when we do these. Okay. And that's a long haul. Believe me, being in that makeup for that length of time, not pleasant. But, uh, yeah, we've done as many as nine, and a comfortable range is usually five, I would say. Okay. Because that gives us a, a little, you know, easier time of it, and we're not, like, under the gun, like, you know, Lucy in the Candy Factory.
0: <laughs> and when you're selecting the films, is there a pattern, I mean, you know, sci-fi, horror, monster movie, killer movie, is is there a pattern of any kind?
2: Well, it's not so much a pattern. Uh my idea, usually is to try to vary it somewhat, because we do get people who will often complain about the fact that we're doing, uh, you know, too many mummy movies all at once, or too many Frankenstein movies. And you know, to me, it's like you're complaining about these universal classics, OK, whatever. <laughs> but I try to, to vary them when I can. And also there are certain ones that we have only a certain time window for, so we have to make sure that they can air only during, like, we've had movies that we can only run during one month. So we have to, you know, make sure it gets in then. So a lot of times it depends on what the contractual window is, the window of time that we can fit the movies in, and, you know, what's available to us at what times.
0: Right off the top of your head, what are some of your favorite and least favorite films that you've shown over the years?
2: No, favorite ones, Uh, definitely Bride of Frankenstein. I do like uh, House of Frankenstein. I got to run Nightmare on Elm Street, which I really enjoyed, and Halloween, the originals. Uh, I really enjoyed those. Ones that I don't like as well, Uh, there's quite a few of those. (laughs) (laughs) I think I may have mentioned to you before the uh, Midnight Movie Massacre, which was an absolutely terrible movie. There was one movie that I often cannot remember, A Track of the Vampire, oh. which is so bad and boring. It's a movie where half of it was shot in California and the other half was shot in Yugoslavia, and neither side knew what the other side was doing. <laughs> and it was so bad that when I was at Channel 32, we actually intercut it with with a bunch of other things, and we did one whole segment that was kind of, you know, svens around where it had changed, and suddenly... The, the woman, it's a scene where this woman is being chased all through the city and into the ocean by the vampire.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And with my redubbing, it became the fact that she was supposed to show up for swim team practice and didn't want to. And that was the coach running after her. <laughs> and at times there was like a bald lifeguard who showed up. So naturally his voice became that of Curly Howard from The Three Stooges. Of course. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was one of the really, really awful ones.
0: I would say, does is it the quality of the film that gets it a a round treatment? Or have you? I, I think I remember once you did it with even with Night of the Living
1: Dead.
2: We, we did separate scenes from that. A lot of times, I'll lift scenes and it, so it doesn't flow, I mean, interrupt the flow of the movie or you know, ruin people's enjoyment of the actual movie itself. If it's a really bad movie, a lot of times the only way to save it is to do something like that, add some sound effects to it along the way.
0: Um, now, I know there was one of the writers from Mystery Science Theater 3000 grew up in Chicago. Have you heard, have you made contact with any of those guys before?
2: No, I've never been in contact with them. I've heard from other people that, you know, they've, they've done little shout-outs to Sven in some of their shows. That um, One guy said he went to some convention and dressed as me and ran into one of them, and the guy immediately said, hey, you're son of Sven Gulli. Okay. <laughs> so they, they know about it. And I remember reading an article in the Chicago Tribune where they were talking to to a couple of the guys, and they said, you know, we weren't the type of guys who were trying to, you know, pick up uh, Cousin Brucie on the radio from New York or whatever like that. We were trying to watch people like Ray Rayner, who did the Morning Kids show here in Chicago, and Sven Gulli so they were aware of, of both and, uh, and they they obviously saw both Jerry Spenguli and my son of Spenguli.
0: Have you ever talked to any of the filmmakers or actors whose movies you've uh, you've aired?
2: Very rarely. Uh you know, a lot of them right now well, are a lot of these universal folks a lot of them not are around. Um <laughs> uh, although I did hear uh, I've got a couple guys who do a great website called Terror from Beyond the Daves. And they have a blog about different horror hosts and horror-oriented things. And they both are guys who grew up watching me and are big fans. And now, especially with our national exposure, when they go to conventions, they they get a lot of feedback about the show from people. They ran into Julie Adams, who was the beautiful woman in the white bathing suit in Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. And she was just thrilled to hear that, you know, we show her, her movie on our program. The same thing with Tippi Hedren from The Birds. Sure. She, we ran at, uh, The Birds here in Chicago and won the time slot, which was just, you know, incredible. For You know, it's like Sven Gulli winning the time slot. Good grief. <laughs> but she was another one who was just thrilled to hear that we were running that show on free broadcast TV since it hasn't appeared on that very much. And it, it's just really great to, you know, get even these secondhand things. I did meet uh, Robert England, Freddy Krueger. And it turns out he's a big fan of my show. He's been watching it out in California now, and he's had a lot of very complimentary things to say about it, which is really nice. Lance Henriksen, mm-hmm. met up with him. He's a very nice guy. It was a lot of fun and seemed to enjoy the show. Um, we we ran him in Pumpkinhead uh, a couple yes. times. Mm-hmm. And I think Piranha 2 as well. So <laughs> Well, that's good. <laughs>
0: How often are you allowed in
2: Berwyn? I'm allowed there any darn time I want to be there. <laughs> do you have Let the key to you. the city yet? They don't even need a key. I've got like a key card. <laughs> just lets me in and out. It's not a problem. Actually, yeah, it's funny because just about, I'd say, 95% of the people in Berwyn love that we do the stuff that we do about that city. And they know it's just jokes. Uh, for a while, they had a mayor who was, was, you know. Oh, go oh, we we don't want to be the butt of Spengouli's jokes and yet anytime I would show up there he always make sure he was there to get a picture shake in my hand.
0: Politician.
2: Yes, <laughs> and uh and and occasionally it's like the the people who are like, "Oh, you know, you shouldn't make fun of our town." But uh, the thing is every time I've done a radio interview or TV interview and people have asked you about Berwyn. I've always, you know, stated what I just told you and the fact that it's a really nice suburb. The people are very nice there. They're all hardworking people and now they're trying to be, you know, a little more upscale and they're adding more arts and and things and, uh, you know, God bless them. It's, It's a nice place and it also has my favorite horror collectibles store, a place called Horror Bolts, which has a real nice stock of all sorts of things.
0: How did you pick Berwyn out of all the, all the towns for the for the bit?
2: That was Jerry's doing. Uh, back when he was trying to figure it out, uh, he had always uh, had, uh, when he was in Cleveland, uh, Goularty, Ernie Anderson, made fun of a server called Parma. And when he came here, he had that in mind. And he also, at that time, Rowan Martin's laughing was kind of winding down, uh-huh. and they were making fun of beautiful downtown Burbank, as was Johnny Carson. And he thought, well, we we need to do something like that. We can make small-town jokes about that. It would be funny. And he was trying to decide on something, and he ended up having a sponsor that was from the Berwyn area. And when he went there, it, it seemed like the one street, Ogden Avenue, was all... Savings and loans and used car lots. And Then he found out that they had the yearly parade in honor of mushrooms, the Hobie Parade. Hobie <laughs> is Czech for mushroom. Yeah. And he decided this would be a good place to to use as our uh, our city that we uh, kind of poke fun at. Well,
0: it has a it has a flow to it compared to say Downers Grove, Westmont, or Wheaton.
2: Yeah, you can't <laughs> go like Cicero. <laughs> it doesn't flow as well as Berwyn. <laughs>
0: Is, is, is there a film that you've always wanted to show and had not ha- have not had a chance to do yet?
2: Yes. Fiend Without a Face. Do you know that movie? Um, the French film, right? No. Oh, no. no, I'm, no. Think- I'm thinking of Eyes Without a
0: Face. I'm sorry. No, no. Sorry. This,
2: is, this is like a cheapo. I think it's an American international one. Okay. Where there's something invisible that is killing people. And they're not sure what it is. And at some point, they find a way to make them visible. And it turns out there are these brains with spinal columns that are kind of, like, inch along. They were done with stop-motion animation. And when they are fighting with them, when you shoot one, it makes a noise like a whoopee cushion kind of. And, and let's lose the sort of raspberry jelly type stuff. Is
0: this the, wait a minute, the flying brains with the eyes? I uh, thinking something else?
2: It, it, you may be confusing it with... Uh, the brain from Planet Eros.
0: Ah, okay, all right.
2: <laughs> but these, you would remember these right away, because they're, okay. they're smaller brains, about the size of a human brain, but they have this sort of spinal column, and they inch along like an inchworm using that. And they can also, like, leap through the air.
0: Well, this is my YouTube project for the day, that's good.
2: All right, <laughs> yes, you'll enjoy it, believe me.
0: Now, now, how long have you been with the U?
2: I have been here since 1995. Yeah, WCIU, and then as we've added more stations, uh, my shows have gone on to the various stations, and including now our network MeTV.
0: How did the MeTV deal come about?
2: Because of the great success we had here in town when the U first went on, it was kind of a hybrid of of what MeTV is, and uh, also a little more modern type programming that we would you know, manage to get. And as we went along, my boss, Neil Sabin, who was like a genius, <laughs> had uh, <laughs> noticed that uh, like Nick at Night and TV land were changing dramatically. And they weren't what they originally were supposed to be, you know, with this classic TV stuff. And he had this idea of making Me-T- the Me TV station, which we did first locally here. And he felt that there was viability to that across the country since, you know, people weren't really getting that presented the way that we presented, and uh, he managed to start, you know, start the wheels in motion, and now we're in almost 80% of the country, and it's especially amazing that it happened in about a year's time to have that kind of progress really says a lot for what Neil could do, and, and what the MeTV nation, uh, National Network can do.
0: I'd say you could call those other syndicated cities from the 80s and blow raspberries at them, but they're probably not there anymore or or probably
2: dead. <laughs> oh, no, you never know. Yeah, most of the people involved have probably moved on and uh, <laughs> are not quite around anymore or yeah, have been deposed. Knowing the nature of television, they probably lost their jobs. And,
0: they're mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore.
2: Yes, and I, I'll shed a tear for them like that Indian standing <laughs> alongside the highway.
0: For me TV, is it strictly Universal films?
2: Right now it is. yeah. Uh, we have a, a really nice contract with Universal, and we're actually working on an extension of that for the future that would add in even more films for us, and we're hoping that that'll happen, and this is really you know the first broadcast TV national uh, exposure for these universal horror films since many, many years ago.
0: Which I think is a, a really cool thing. I know uh, I, recently there's been films like The Mole People, which I haven't seen in a long, long time. And I know uh, uh, the, uh, the horror film with uh, Dirk Benedict and, and uh, Strother Martin. I mean, those are ones I can't even think of the last yeah, time you're I talking saw. About the... <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's cool that you, you look for films that have not seen the light of day in a long time.
2: Yeah and I think it, it's a really an education for a lot of people, because there is a generation that hasn't seen these. We, when we were kids, it seemed like they ran much more on television, and now, if they run at all, they've run on cable as opposed to on you know actual broadcast TV. So the fact that we're kind of you know reintroducing these to a lot of people who maybe never saw them before is, is really great. It's nice to continue the universal legacy.
0: And and also from a you talk about from an educational standpoint, I love when you do a segment based on who these actors appeared in, you know, what other films they've appeared in, what the director has worked on. You know, when when my daughter saw that Bella Lugosi played the Frankenstein monster, that that blew her lit a little bit in a good way. Uh,
2: sure, yeah, there are things that people really don't expect, uh, or you know, they don't know about connections to various things, like the people who ended up playing some other part on on a TV series years later that they had no idea that that ever happened. So it's very cool to be able to, you know, make these connections for people or just remind people, you know, this guy also did this. And at times, it's it's really a tribute to the versatility of the actors and and it's great to show that they had a wide enough range to do so many things.
0: You're walking IMDB, sir?
2: yeah, <laughs> no, I'm sitting right now. Actually.
0: <laughs> and I know also um, you've, you've also been showing comedy shows and, and don't listen to the internet. there's nothing wrong with that with showing you know I know you've done the Three Stooges Marathon and Abbott and Costello
2: and yeah uh, you know, well, most of the Abbott and Costello stuff we've shown still has a horror element to it. It's not, you know, we're not just showing, you know, hit the ice or something like right. that. Abbott and Costello, Meet the Mummy, or, or you know, Frankenstein or whoever. Uh, we've thrown in a few things here and there. Yeah, well, you know, Ghost and Mr. Chicken, there's still like a horror sure. or scare element to that. If anything, you know, we've run some Marsh Brothers movies, and uh, that's mainly because I'm a big fan of the Marsh Brothers. They were a big influence on me. And uh, you know, I, again, I love him. He was like, "Oh, this is wrong. You should be showing only scary things." And uh, it's like, "Have you noticed that a great portion of my part of the show is comedy?" Yeah, <laughs> I don't know.
0: And we we also like the you know you you air it be, the same reason why dogs lick their elbows because you
2: can. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> and also, thanks for saying elbows.
0: Well, yes. Thank you for saying <laughs> elbows too. Um, and also it's it's really cool that the, the show on MeTV you've you kind of become an ambassador for local horror show hosts it's a lost art i mean we have we have Sammy Terry popping up every every few months here in Indianapolis but it it's cool for you to give shout outs to cities that have had hosts and you show other hosts and even show old photos of Jerry and you um it, it's it's a lost art i think for local television
2: well with the the way that uh, television has been going now in the tv economy most local uh, stations do not do entertainment-type shows. They're mainly, you know, they have budgets. They're going to do news and sports and public affairs and an occasional magazine show. But, you know, they're not going to do something that's strictly entertainment because, according to them, it it doesn't generate enough money to justify, you know, the studio time and editing time and everything like that. And when we first started here uh, locally, the people in charge of the station said, you know, well, maybe we're not going to make money on this, but it's an important part of TV and something that viewers really get an attachment to and make a connection with, and that's important to us. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, you know, we're, we're doing very well, and it's it's nice to see that people, you know, every, every email I get from out of town, for the most part, will mention we haven't had anything in town like this since, you know, in the 70s with, you know, Dr., Bad teeth, or something like that. So <laughs> there's always everybody's got a horror host they watch sometime in their life. It seems.
0: Do you do you do shows strictly for me TV, and then you do shows strictly for the U?
2: We yeah, we have um, some shows that that run basically. Well, the ones that run on me TV right now also run on the U, as like a week delay basis. But then on the U two, we run some of the older ones that we have that we still have rights to, or that are public domain. And I also do a Three studio show, Studio Palooza, that runs on Saturday nights on our Me 2 channel.
0: So I was going to say, how often do you get to appear on TV as Rich?
2: Uh, every week. Okay. <laughs> Basically, there yeah. There you go.
0: <laughs>
2: so, yeah, it's, it's, I'm in the makeup, I'm out of the makeup, in the makeup, I'm out of the makeup.
0: Well, you, you're, you know, it, it keeps you young, maybe.
2: Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> or but...
0: young at heart.
2: Okay, I'll go with that.
0: <laughs> so so what's next for, uh, for Spangoolie?
2: Uh, right now I, it seems like we're just continuing to go to more and more of the uh, places in america more and more uh, stations are picking up the MeTV network and getting better distribution of it and a lot of them we started out just over the air and now it's going to cable as well in a lot of the cities and uh, wider distribution in in a lot of the cities There's a lot of rumors about uh, out on the west coast that uh, we're going to have more visibility out there. So uh, I think it's just a matter of the spin show catching on in these various places, and then I think the next step after that is possibly starting to make public appearances all over the country, which should be fun.
0: Well, you know, you have a place to crash in Indianapolis, that's for sure. Well,
2: <laughs> thanks. I appreciate that.
0: From 2012, that was my interview with Rich Coase, a.k.a. Spangoolie. Spangoolie made – well, son of Spangoolie – Made its uh, television debut June sixteenth, nineteen seventy nine. So happy anniversary to Rich and to Sven. Um, a, a little backstory on that. So I I interviewed Rich Coase in Chicago, not Berwyn, uh, before moving down to Indianapolis. So this was uh, nineteen ninety nine, and uh, I, I somehow weaseled my way into the studio and got to sit at his office and and do an interview. I was gonna I was freelancing it. Tried selling it to a number of publications, none of them took it. And then I moved to Indiana and I felt bad because, you know, I tried to, you know, he gave me his time and we had a really fun chat and, uh, you know, it didn't sell. Fast forward to years and years later, uh, he's on MeTV and uh, I was able to get another interview with him. So I, I had set up an interview, and also the fact that my, my partner in crime, uh, radio miscreant Abdul Hakim Shabazz, who grew up in Chicago, watched the original Spangoolie and Son of Spangoolie. So we were, it was going to be an interview with, uh, with Abdul and myself and Emma, and uh, he blanked on it. Blanked out, and then I received a really lovely apology email saying he is never, never spaced out on an interview ever, and uh, he was nice enough to not only give me one but two interviews, one with Abdul and Emma. And then uh, one with the one I just shared with you, the the epic one. So anyway, really lovely man, and and he was very cool, and, and I got to share that story with you. So yes, once again, happy anniversary to Spangoolie and Rich Coe's fun stuff there. All right, friends, some words to live by.
1: Silent breed is people! Zardoz has, Zardoz. has spoken.
0: Go see a good movie. You deserve it. There's plenty out there. Hopefully you find some films that are new, or at least new to you, as well as falling back on old favorites. Uh, I want to end a little audio tribute. Now, I I say pardon my French on this with with an actor who had just passed away uh, last week. And I actually, while I was trying to find the pronunciation... Um, here's an old inside trick. If if there's an artist whose name I, I'm uncertain to pronounce, you type it into YouTube and then write, you know, type in the person's name and an interview. Well, I came up and typed in this name with, and it came up pronunciation. So let's hear what Facebook says. Jean-Louis Trintignant. Jean, Jean-Louis Trintignant, who was a staple of uh, French cinema from the late 50s, um on. So some of the films you might know him from. Uh Michel Tardou, he was that in 1956's in God Created Woman, The Fabiani Affair, The Last Steps. Probably the thing he's most known for is 1966's A Man and a Woman. Uh, also appeared in is Paris Burning was uh Silence in the Great Silence, the great 1968 Western uh, Z Oh, yeah. I forgot about Z. My Night at Maud's, The Conformist, The Crook, Secret Intentions, and Hope to Die, The Outside Man, Um, Hustle. No, not that Hustle. Um, uh, Under Fire, which I remember seeing in the theaters when I was 13. A Man and a Woman 20 Years Later was in three colors. uh, Christoph Krasnowski's Red, Um, Immortal. And then played Georges, played George in uh, Amour from 2012, heartbreaking film. And one of his last ones was uh, Happy End from 2017. So uh, especially the pick up some of the French uh, crime dramas of the 70s. So with that in mind, so salute to Jean-Louis. Uh, here's the theme from A Man and a Woman, so this show feels like it's 1966. Anyway, friends, thank you for listening, and we'll chat next week. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan.
2: leave you let her watch manos is she scarred
0: for life let's put it this way when i
2: parent are you
0: (laughs) when i wake her up i vocalize the theme to wake her up to get her ready to school
1: oh you're a terrible father we'll do it live okay We'll... we'll do it live